Hello, Drew. Well, hi there, Callie. It's March, and we are we are finally doing this journey <laughs> game, kind of. Uh, yes. So we we've been procrastinating a bit, I think. Um, yeah. How how's March been for you? Oh, you know, it's March. I've been, I guess, doing some stuff. We have been procrastinating. I think we may as well just come out and say it. Uh, neither one of us enjoy playing Journey um, as as a game. We did not, and we do not enjoy playing it. No, I mean. I, I really dislike this expression, but we don't want to like beat a dead horse with <laughs> many of the reasons that people have expressed why this game is kind of a a bummer. But myself, I just yeah, it was it was laborious. That's the adjective that I'm going to use to describe my experience playing it. So since there isn't a lot of positive conversation about this game out there in the ether like Callie said we don't really want to beat a dead horse we don't want to uh, spend an hour just snarking about a mark blank game because that's not really who i am what we really want to do is just sort of acknowledge these issues and have more of a general conversation about some of the things that are interesting about a journey and probably direct you listeners to some resources to hear about uh, other takes and uh, some other items that may be of interest to you. But before we get into all of that, um, Callie, I, I guess we're it's time for us to just sort of check in, see what's been going on. Yeah, it feels like it's been a minute. Um, you know, our last episode was sort of outside of our play the 36 titles. It was kind of a feature on an article by uh, Professor Anastasia Salter about Plundered Hearts. So it feels like it's been a minute since we've sat down to talk about a game. Um, and lots has been happening. Um, for example, you've written several great posts <laughs> over the past several weeks. So what are you? what's going on over at Gold Machine? I'm not... Last... I think the last time we did... Uh, we did an episode here. I was finished with Enchanter and was making my way through, oh, gee whiz, what's after Enchanter? Infidel? No. That was a long time ago. No, I think it was Infidel. Okay. I actually, Infidel. I think that's right. Um, those of you who follow Gold Machine know I... I think pretty highly of that game, despite the fact that uh, it doesn't have, um, I, I, it's not what I would call a fun game, but I think um, when you start thinking about history of video games and cultural analysis, uh, Infidel uh, really moves the medium forward in, in a few meaningful ways, and I really appreciate it for that. I enjoyed writing about Infidel. Um, I I also, since then, have written about Sorcerer, mm -hmm. which is the sequel to Enchanter. And uh, again, those of you who've been, for whatever reason, if you take an interest in things I like and uh, 
<laughs> etc. Enchanter is one of my two favorite Infocom games, and Sorcerer, uh, to me, is a crushing disappointment. I didn't get a lot of uh, crush pushback on on that take, but I I didn't get a lot of replies on Sorcerer, so maybe uh, people just didn't think it was worth arguing with me about. Uh, but I I do find Sorcerer very disappointing. I feel like uh, sort of like Zork Zero. It um I just don't really think either game really understands what makes Zork interesting as a universe or as a game franchise. And um and as a result they it's just joke after joke after joke, uh, sort of relentlessly. And I, I didn't I I don't enjoy that as much. So got through Sorcerer. Didn't get any fights with anybody. Uh, even yeah, uh, it does have the time travel puzzle, which is one of Infocom's greatest puzzles. So it's not like it's not as if Sorcerer is a waste of time. It's just when you put it in a room with the Zork trilogy and Enchanter and Spellbreaker, uh, it's obviously it's a little underdressed. Maybe. It's it's the <laughs> it's the unwanted relative at the picnic. Oh no! Uh, just. Uh, it does, doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong in that room. Um, so, you know, compared to almost every other Infocom game, uh, not Infocom game, but almost every other text adventure game, it's superior. But when you start trying to operate at that level, um, Sorcerer just doesn't have what it takes, in my opinion. Um, I think it's worth noting you've done a great summary of the games you have been working on um but you have slowed down your rate of production i guess we could call it and used to you would do a game a week right yeah so you would do all three posts in one week now you're doing a post per week so each game is divided out over a period of three weeks yes so how's that how's that new pace going uh, I think it's working out well. It's especially working out well um, with games I don't like as much because I find I'm not getting as irritated and frustrated. If I were writing, for instance, by the time I got to the end of The Witness, mm. I was really just fed up with that game. And I think that's because um, I did it all uh, in pretty rack, rapid succession. Mm -hmm. Um, but being able to take a week between posts with something like sorcerer or, um, well, sea stalker, which I've just started, it's going to be the same way. If I, if I had to write three posts about sea stalker in a week by the last post, I'd probably, uh, I'm joking, but kind of not joking. Yeah. I'd probably be dropping F bombs, uh, in the margins and um, explicit children's game <laughs> yes, my, language. My spicy, my spicy adult take on a children's game. Uh, and <laughs> so for and the the new pace is definitely working out for me in, uh, in that way. And I, I think the other side of that is even with games I like, it's nice to be able to sort of meditate and uh, come come to a post fresh in a way I wasn't able to before. And let's be honest, now that Elden Ring has been out for, is this week three since it's been released or two? Uh, it's more than two for sure. Oh, okay. So now that Elden Ring is out, honestly, 
uh, I think you're probably glad to have a little bit extra time so you can <laughs> hop over <laughs> to the PS5 and play. Oh, wow. Yeah, Elden Ring has been taking up a, a good amount of my time, and I I do think it's a really uh, great game. I've... And it seems now I'm not really in a mode of playing uh, contemporary video games a lot. Um, but a game like this comes out and it's kind of an event. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been, I think, six years since they're from software's last game. So this is an event. And until it's done, I'm, I'm going to play it a lot. And then I don't know what. I mean, I, I think in a couple of weeks the interactive fiction uh, event spring thing is is going to be that's an interactive fiction community event it's like kind of like a contest uh, with new new works by members of the community and I, I'm planning on uh, playing some of those and judging and giving feedback uh, so Elden Ring's going to have to get out of the way one way or the other, whether I beat it or whether I just have to put it to the side. But I know that's coming in a, in a little over a week. That's really exciting. I don't think we've ever mentioned on the podcast that you have read for previous competitions. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's really cool. I, I also like the name Spring. I thought it was Spring Fling when I heard it. I was like, oh, how cheerful. But what's it called? Spring? Spring Thing. Spring Thing, which is also quite intriguing. So many great things hopefully ahead for this spring. Yeah. Um, I guess the only other thing, speaking of interactive fiction community stuff, is I'm trying to learn and form and write my own game, which is... Uh, sort of a mixed bag Very so exciting. far. <laughs> um, I I don't know a lot of programming. I mean, I kind of cludged around with stuff back when I worked in IT. Uh, but mainly I was working from the other end, not creating new stuff, but working on uh, application compatibility or, um, you know, security conflicts with local apps, things like that. So, um, this is a new deal for me and I, I hope I can finish it and hope it works out well. Um, really, I just hope that technically I, yeah, I'll brag on myself a little. Yeah, I, I've, I'm a pretty, pretty all right writer, really. You know, I write pretty well and I, I just would like, um, to be able to do technically whatever it is I come up with as a writer of prose. I hope I can technically realize uh, those ideas. Yeah, it's been really neat for this particular story that you're working on because I remember when it started out as a novel and it's been fascinating to see how your thinking has shifted from the idea of writing it in a novel form to a game. And so I'm excited to see um, what that does for the narrative. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. You'll be the first to see it, of course. Very cool. Um, so that's that's a whole lot about me. I mean, that's like eight minutes about me. Uh, what, what what on earth have you been up to, Callie? 
I am I am on earth still. Um, I am working on my dissertation. I need to wrap up my prospectus to send to my committee. And um, it's been a lot of fun. So one thing I guess I haven't really talked about is more of my my focus. So it's a um, English PhD, but my dissertation will be a manuscript of poems with a kind of academic critical introduction component. And the argument that I'm trying to work out or the focus um, that I'm diving into is animal studies and poetry. So trying to think about specifically Patricia Smith's collection Blood Dazzler. There's a series of poems about a dog named Luther B who is left behind um, by his family when Hurricane Katrina hits. And um, so I'm using (laughs) David Foster Wallace's 2004 essay, Consider the Lobster, that was published in Gourmet Magazine um, is to try to sort of establish a framework of how to read. I think it's really fascinating what he does in that work um, in terms of kind of defying the expectations of the genre. I mean, it's a food magazine, but he's actually placing the lobster's sentience <laughs> um, and its preferences at the center of the discussion. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to work out those ideas. It's been slow, um, but pretty, pretty rewarding. Um, let's see. What else have I been up to? Well, I I think you've been been trying to get certified to teach yoga, right? <laughs> yeah, I like to do many different things at once. Uh, I think they they sort of feed one another, or they feed me in many different ways. Um, so yeah, I am working on my two hundred hour yoga certification. I'm about to wrap that up, and um, you know, now that COVID seems to be, I don't know. I don't want to jinx any of us, but Whatever the, the current status is, it feels a bit safer. And so I have been enjoying um, attending in-person yoga classes and actually breathing in a room with other people, which has been frightening for the past few years. So it's been good to get to get back out and reconnect with that and to continue pursuing my certification. So hopefully I'll be teaching one day. Nice. Um, of course, you teach me for free. Uh, hopefully that won't stop. No, Drew's an excellent student. Um, yes, I, I appreciate him being my guinea pig. <laughs> um, and haven't you been doing some stuff with like your social media and uh, your online uh, presence? Yes. So this whole idea of we all have to have a brand nowadays, I guess. <laughs> in order to make it. Um, I have. I have been trying to shape up my my social platform, um, getting ready for going on the post-doc job market. I do intend to do a non-academic route, but yes, so I have, I'm working on establishing a website. Um, in terms of our project here at Gold Microphone, I have started a Twitter account. It's GoldMac underscore Callie. So I know I have um, followed and connected with many of you, but hopefully we can continue to to grow that. Nice. Um, and I think we just want to talk about Batman really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah Batman. <laughs> we, we saw Batman, the newest Batman. And uh, if y'all indulge us for a minute, it was so cool. I really, I really liked Batman uh, as a person who 
when I was younger, read a lot of DC comics and, and Batman specifically, I thought it was a cool take. Uh, Batman's going around doing detective stuff and not uh, necessarily in these like 30, 20 minute set piece battle things um, that are entertaining. I've enjoyed, but um, that more detective investigative side of uh, the character, I think has been underdeveloped in uh, other media like film uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. What'd you think? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, I I mean, all just in terms of craft, it's the commitment to the soundtrack, sort of building the uh, the central theme around Nirvana's something in the way. And um, the costumes are great. I kept looking at uh, Batman's cape and was like, I wonder what that fabric is. It was so perfectly folded and draped <laughs> during all the scenes and um zoe kravitz was amazing yes. and yeah yes. i thought that they did a great job of having an emotional center that i felt was true to all the characters definitely i agree 100 percent um so hopefully hopefully there's more where that came from Okay, so let's get into what we're talking about today, which is Journey. And we are going to start with some mail first. Before we get there, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I'm I'm trying to proceed with enthusiasm. (laughs) So let's go ahead and jump into it. Um, Drew's going to kick us off with David Reingold. Yes, got a mail from David Reingold. Uh, My biggest quibble with fantasy as a genre is the tendency of authors to use magic as a crutch in lieu of problem solving. As the science fiction writer Jerry Pornell put it, a story in which anything goes puts the reader on the edge of his chair, nodding with sleep. That's why you must construct your most far-flung universe with the cement of logic and make the most incredible events credible. Too many magic spells, see... Rowling, J.K., may make the reader wonder why the characters do not use them at other points in the story. Which is not to sound like a sourpuss. I enjoy Harry Potter as much as the next person. My my point, rather, is that interactive fiction as a medium demands greater consistency than books, film, or TV. Game writers must anticipate how spells would act on any object in the game and structure their puzzles accordingly. And I thought this was a, a, a good point. And I, I wanted, this is related to Enchanter. This is, you know, going back to our discussion of Enchanter on the podcast and on the website. So I, I replied briefly, how do you think Enchanter failed in, fared in those terms? I think that, in terms of future technology and or magic, I am interested in rules that can be logically applied and extrapolated from. And David Rheingold replied, Superbly. It's funny. I don't read or watch much fantasy, but Infocom's fantasy titles were all among my very favorites. I loved the entire Enchanter and Zork series and thought Beyond Zork made a perfect send-off of sorts. Of course, I'd rather have seen Infocom stay around and continue to produce all-text adventures. I realized they needed to take gaming to the next level, 
but I was more impressed with their developments in function, e.g. border zone, than graphics. Shogun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, good point and, and good food for thought today. Uh, graphics, of course, play a... Um, they take up maybe a third of the screen's real estate in Journey. So you're looking at them all the time. And um, that's that's a question I think worth asking is how much do they add to the experience um, given again, that you're, you're giving up a third of the interface for it. Yeah, that was a great, um, great point. I also like what you said about just having too many magic spells and not really having a system of how to use them. It's kind of like anything goes or, Oh, this is a convenient time for a spell. Um, I think that's what we both really loved about, Enchanter. And so I really enjoyed seeing the conversation that you and Drew had, uh, David. All right. Our next uh, note comes from B.B. Dural, And this is regarding Enchanter's reuse of the scene from Zork 3 and whether that is unique from in the Infocom canon. So Dural says, I guess we could quibble over whether it's a scene, but the intro to Zork 1 is recreated in Wishbringer the first time you first go south from the rocky path in Witchville to the west of House. They even included several extra line feeds to scroll the extraneous Wishbringer text off the top of the screen to complete the illusion. All very good points, BB. I I replied to you on the website, but um, there is something very interesting about what happens there in Wishbringer with the, uh, especially the side comments about how there's recognition, you know, or you know you'll return, uh, this implied cycle um, that unfortunately we never get to find out um, more about it. Um, I think part of it is just predicting that uh, you know, Duncan Stevens mentioned this uh, in a comment uh, because this is an introductory game. Perhaps we'll later play uh, the real Zork one, and that in that sense, the player does have that uh, you know sure sureness that they will return. Um, but it's an interesting thing Moriarty put together, and um, no telling what would have happened if we would have gotten more games that weren't in the vein of uh, uh, Zork Zero, which um, (laughs) I'm not going to dive into this today, but I feel about it the same way I feel about Sorcerer. I feel like uh, Moriarty does more interesting things with the uh, post-trilogy Zork than than Moretsky does. Uh, Moretsky has a lot of wonderful games, but the Zork universe is just... Is not not a place where he operates very well. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for that note, BB. Um, if you want to go back to that comment and see what Duncan said, and if you have anything else to say, it'd be fun to continue that conversation. Um, or, you know, just catch us up on Sea Stalker. That's fine, too. <laughs> and uh, the next thing is just a note from uh, Arcade Idea about your new gold machine pace. 
Uh, yes. Uh, they say, the way you were booking it, I was worried you were going to burn right up. <laughs> I'm glad you're slowing down. Uh, thanks, Art. Uh, it, if uh, you're interested generally in uh, retro video game history, especially with an emphasis on cultural analysis, there is just some great, great stuff coming from Arcade Idea on WordPress. Uh, definitely want to check it out. If, if that sounds like something that interests you, um, comes out every other week, so it's really easy to keep up with. It's just a great follow. Uh, so that's my plug. Yeah. Um, all right. And I think we have two more. This next mail entry is from Blake, and he writes, Hi, Drew. Have you played the informed game Spirit Rack by Daniel S. Yu? It was written in the late 1990s by an Infocom fan. You visit a number of cities from Infocom's Enchanter universe. Additionally, the demon from Sorcerer can make an appearance depending on decisions made by the player. I think the game is set several hundred years after Spellbreaker and beyond Zork. So have you played that game yet? Uh, no. Uh, based on Blake's recommendation, I did download it from the uh, IF archive, and I am going to play it for sure. I just haven't, I haven't touched it yet. Blake, it's always good to hear from you. Thanks for writing in. Yeah, definitely. So I think we have one more mail. Oh, yes. <laughs> This was a fun one. Uh, this we the episode wasn't about cutthroats, but I did. I made a disparaging remark about cutthroats, and um, that, which is good luck because I, I got this uh, response that I enjoyed. Hello, first, it's awesome that you're doing this series. In 1981, Zork 1 was my introduction to IF and PCs in general. Been needing an IF podcast fix, with Eaten by a Groove slowing down to close. Am listening to the most recent Gold Microphone cast, and when you threw the Cutthroats comment into the stream, it made me smile. I am a Cutthroats fan. I am a Cutthroats fan because it is desolate, I am a Cutthroats fan because it is sketchy. I am a Cutthroats fan because it is a horrible day. I am a Cutthroats fan because I lived in Olympia, Washington, right off the sound, and it feels like home. I am a Cutthroats fan because it is the goondocks of Infocom. Kevin and Carrington nailed it in their episode. I am eagerly looking forward to your review. The more dislike that is poured on cutthroats, the more it becomes, well, cutthroats. Best wishes, Brian. Brian, that was so fun. I love your syntax, like the repetition of this is cutthroats, this is cutthroats. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, very well written and yeah. uh, so fun to, to hear your, your take. Yeah, enjoyed that a lot. And, um, you know, the wait's almost over. I'm uh for however this happened we have a the one two punch of 
Sea Stalker, and then isn't Cutthroats next? So that would that would mean the next game I'm writing about is Cutthroats. So will April be the cruelest month? <laughs> will April be the cruelest month? Um I'll tell you that it's um you know when it comes to Mike Berlin, you know, I, I always I always assume that there's more at work um than we can see on the surface. You know, Mike Berlin was a very thoughtful uh creator and even if I don't enjoy cutthroats, um you you better believe that I, I, I gave it more thought uh than than I would uh just you know any other game just from the Berlin name. And so uh I think things like uh, the setting and all that are important and we're talking about I, and there's I, I don't want to steal my thunder my own thunder but when when we get there i think there is a conversation to be had between um the setting versus the gameplay and you know because there is excellence in cutthroats even if the end result isn't in my opinion excellent uh so um i'm definitely not going to dump all over that game uh, whatever my comments might have suggested, but I, I hope after I start writing back, writing about it, I get to hear from you again. We can we can talk a little bit about your thoughts. All right. Well, are we ready to shift a little bit more towards what others have said about Journey? So, Drew, you put out a question right on the interactive fiction community forum, and did you just ask like a poll, or how did you frame that conversation? Uh, there was a poll, um, although the, you know, not just a plurality, but a majority of respondents had never played it. They didn't have an opinion on it. Um, so the, definitely one of Infocom's lesser played games. Um, the number of people who liked and disliked it were actually pretty evenly, uh, evenly matched. Um, that being so, it probably won't surprise you that we didn't get a whole lot of actual uh, comments on the experience of Journey, but I did get a few, and I think they're worth uh, talking about. Um, I also want to direct people, if, if, if you have yet to play Journey, but you want to play Journey, um, in that thread where I asked, uh, do you like Mark Blank's Journey?, uh, there's instructions for how modern players can uh, get a hold of the game and frauds and other interpreters are a little fussy because of the graphics and the layout. Uh, there's instructions on how to make that game work. Um, this is definitely worth a look if, if you want to dive deeper into Journey but don't know uh, how to get it running. Uh, that's, again, on the Interactive Fiction Community Forum. Very cool. And I know you, you enjoy hanging out there, I think, daily. Uh, so if you aren't on there yet, it could be a fun place if you want to have more conversations about interactive fiction. Okay, so this comment on, from the forum is from Zarf. And they say, I wasn't very happy with it at the time since, A, I only wanted more parser games. B, the story and setting felt very low effort. C, most of the game was the resource puzzle. 
and the resource puzzle was not fun. However, that one language puzzle was brilliant, and I loved the experience of figuring it out. That's pretty much the only thing about Journey that I remember now. So I have to say, Zara, if you kind of summarize my (laughs) experience, I'm much on the same page with you, um, especially the low effort story and setting. We don't have to get into that exactly at the moment, but um, I think you did a great line of kind of outlining some discussion points. Uh, Definitely. Um, And I I like the language puzzle, too. It's been said again and again, and uh, you won't hear us dispute it, that Journey borrows perhaps too liberally from uh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, But one fortunate borrowing is uh, that language puzzle, which feels like um, an, an extrapolation from the speak, friend, and enter uh, problem at the gates of Moria. Uh, and uh, it works very well. And it's the kind of thing, I, when, I, when I talked about language and enchanter, you know, one of the things that works very well in interactive fiction games and text adventure games are language problems. You know, uh, really, text games are the only games that handle them well. Um, and whether that's yeah, they're in their natural habitat. That's right. It's a text-based medium. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, whether you're using a magic system that's based on text and books and language, or you're solving a puzzle like this, uh, things just seem to work very well. Like you said, Callie, in their native habitat, and that that puzzle is definitely uh, just such a case. Uh, so, thanks, thanks for that. Uh, Torbjorn Anderson, uh, a.k.a. Eric Torbjorn, is, uh, he says, I very much enjoyed it back when I first played it, even though I had to start over from the beginning because I hadn't written down the clues for the final puzzles. The game probably does what it set out to do and does so quite well indeed. I like fantasy, and I used to read a lot of choose-your-own-adventure type books, primarily the Lone Wolf 3 ones. So it ticked all the right boxes for me. There are still bits of it that I remember fondly. I guess it comes down to whether you enjoy the story and how willing you are to overlook its obvious flaws. Those resource limitations. Didn't any tester at the time object? Um, all good points. And, and um, <laughs> you know, Torbjorn, every time um, I, I talk to somebody about Journey, one of the things I say is that I know there are smart people out there that, that like Journey. And I'm referring to you. You're the smart person I know that likes Journey. So, um, you know, if this isn't um, this isn't a case where I think everybody ought to know better you know uh, there there are merits in the game and uh you know your personal ability to enjoy them or not is ultimately up to you um and whether Callie and i enjoyed it or not we can certainly respect that um i'll talk a little bit about the game book thing in a minute because that that really interests me and is a good point all right and we have this is our final 
post from the forum that we'll highlight, and it's from Lazy Game Designer eighty two. Um, and they say this is a tough one. On one hand, I have to give Journey full credit for launching my interest in IF as a whole. On the other, I agree that there were definite frustrations, an understatement in terms of gameplay and fairness. The lack of a parser interface made it easy to play, but it was offset by things like the essence management system. Perhaps at the time, I just took it all in stride as I had nothing to compare it to. I hadn't played any parser-based games prior to this. In this case, I will go with the 12-year-old me and say, good. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's really interesting that you first played this before playing any of the parser games. Um, I, you know, as you kind of highlight in your comment, I wonder if maybe you were less frustrated because like you say, that's all that's all you knew. So it's kind of neat that you you shared with us how you came into it, the level of experience and familiarity with Infocom you did you had when you came into this game. And I think that's something maybe we'll touch on in a minute as well as the artistic choice. And Callie and I come from a writing background. We both have MFAs and, you know, part of, uh, creating a work is making decisions about its nature. And what I mean by that is if I want to tell a story about, um, you know, lose my wallet on the way to the grocery store. Uh, I can tell that story in a sonnet or I can tell it in a short story. Screenplay. Right. And, you know, all those have severe, major implications for how things are going to turn out. Um, and I think by the same token, you can ask the question is, this story, is it suited for a choice-based narrative, or is this a parser story that has the choice thing grafted onto it? And I don't have a good answer to that, you know, just this second, but uh, trying to think about the craft choice, um, like not, not the technical choice. Uh, people in this community get very interested in technical choices, but I'm talking about the craft choice of, um, giving up the parser in this story and what that buys the player and what the player may have to give up. Um, and I think it's worth kind of laying that out in a, in a clear way. Uh, but certainly um, as a young person, if you hadn't played Enchanter or whatever, um, you'd just be seeing the game for what it is uh, in, in a very pure sense. Um, and your expectations wouldn't have interfered with that experience. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in a sense, it'd be nice if we could approach almost every game that way, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I, it's not, it's not actually possible. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all. That was awesome. Um, to hear from you. So I think we should get to it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so just to back up and do some of the basics, this game was released in 1989. It was implemented by Mark Blank. It was the second to last Infocom game. And as Drew highlighted early, earlier, it's inspired by, if that's you know the right way to put it, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And 
you know, I'm not, I'm not a Mark Blank biographer. I haven't read a Mark Blank biography, though I, I absolutely would. Um, but I recall Jimmy Marr saying in his history of first MIT Zork, but then commercial Zork, that um, really only Dave Lebling at the time was uh, a reader of fantasy and and a fan of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so the all the you know the sword sword fight stuff with the thief and the troll, uh, with the hidden dice rolls and hit points that that was all Dave Leveling. Uh, Mark Mark Blank and, and the rest of the gang they were they weren't really into that stuff, um, and my takeaway from that was that at the time, Mark Blank probably wasn't somebody who would have read the Lord of the Rings. Um, now I don't know that to be true. Uh, that was never said, but um, that's one of the things that surprised me uh, when picking up Journey was. Um, well, it's obviously by somebody who's read The Lord of the Rings. Um, I wonder how much, and I know we're just speculating here, but how much do you think Blank choosing to do a fantasy game was from marketing pressure? I mean, this is the second to last Infocom game. I think you had mentioned, was it Lebling who did the market research or someone else and said, who did the market research? Uh, Mike Dornbrook. Okay, yes. yeah. So Dornbrook was like, fantasy is the most appealing genre for sales so any any thoughts you have about that well i know that as a company they took that stuff to heart um the two things infocom customers apparently like most not me mind you um but customers in general uh were fantasy and comedy mm. and uh, that's one of the reasons i'm sure why the um, gray box reissues of the Zork trilogy. I have so much silly nonsense in the browsers. It was this idea that, well, we need to make Zork even sillier than it already is. Um, which, you know, looking back, I would say that the amount of silliness in Zork is pretty well calibrated. And um, you should just don't just randomly walk up to works of art and make them more silly. Uh, after they exist. That's my opinion. Um, but the point is, I'm sure there would have been some eagerness for a fantasy game, at least in terms of what gets approved. I think there would be more interest in um, fantasy than sci-fi, uh, let alone mystery, which mystery just completely fell off the map. <laughs> Poor mystery. It never, it never really, well, you like deadline. Um, Love deadline. So there is, there is that. And, uh, but yeah, so who knows, you know, it's, who knows what was going through, you know, Blank's experience of writing this and maybe he had a good time. Um, we're not sure, but the, the feeling of playing it is a, mm, like I said earlier, just kind of laborious it's the story you feel like you're being so i guess we will have a spoiler fence in this episode but what i should say is that you kind of know how it's gonna end it's, right. it's not really a secret how it's gonna end there yeah there the the broad strokes of the story are not going to surprise 
I think anybody. Uh, there's like one weird dude at the end that might uh, be curious to some, but by and large, you you just you will see things coming before they happen. Um, I don't, you know. And the funny thing is, I I told. Well, we we don't need to get to that now. We're just we're right now we're just laying things out. So yeah. Um, so I just want to jump really quickly to the to the cover art for this. We need to kind of outline the main characters. We have Bergun, who's a young carpenter. Praxis, our our main wizard companion. Escher, a healer, and Tag, a merchant. And this is um, primarily from Tag's perspective it's a it's an imagined like you're writing the chronicle it occurs in past tense from tag's perspective and um but what i find interesting is the cover art for this and um yeah it i guess they're putting praxis at the center with a blue hood holding a staff very wizard-like and then behind there are the other three uh, with various expressions, and I'm guessing we're Tag, the young kind of blonde, surprised guy in the corner. Um, and I was talking with Drew earlier, and I think a point of contrast for this cover is another game uh, that is also has a large cast, and that it would be Plundered Hearts. And on that cover, you get a sense that it's you have the two main characters, and then you have Crowley. Um, but you have a clear sense of who's actually central in the game. Mm-hmm. But by looking at this cover, this I said a lot of things to get to the point, which is what's really confusing to me about this game, not only in its visual presentation, but actually the experience of playing it, is who is the central protagonist. And I think there's this constant tension between, oh, we're tag, we're telling tags from tag's perspective, and then, oh, we're like everybody, who's who, where is everyone? Yeah, um, there's a lot of kind of uh, people shuffling off stage left and then someone else turning up. And um, I really couldn't keep the name straight, um, except for uh, the wizard, uh, because he had the essences that if you, you know, he he was really the only puzzle person. solving apparatus in the game really um i mean there were some others but he mainly was him and so you have to know who that is uh but i couldn't i i think i was more than halfway done before i started really figuring out who these people were and i don't know if it was um i was looking at the packaging from the uh museum of computer game gaming history where I get most of my Infocom uh, documentation and feelies. Um, and the manual I looked at didn't explain who any of these people are. So uh, I'm standing there in a, um, you know, a, a store where I've got my only chance to buy a map that I'll need about 40 minutes later. Um, and, and one of the things I can do um is I can, you know, I can have various people look at things and I'm like, I don't know who these people are, why their no. perspective matters. And uh, it got worse. Like when we get to the bar, which is 
one step further. And, you know, again, you have to have, um, you have to recruit a person. If you don't recruit them, you're, you're just screwed. And I can have somebody named Escher go walk around the bar. It's like, well, who's Escher? Why, why do I want him to walk around the bar? And of course, back then, I think we were all a lot more um, willing to just kind of click on things and type things till something happened. Yeah, but then, like, that's also complicated by, like, Bergen. Before we know his name or who he is, it's just, like, an unsavory character. But yet you're you're supposed to go talk to him. And we don't know who he is. We don't know who's going to talk to him or what sort of tactics we should use or our goals. And I was very surprised. Like, Drew was like, oh, the manual will help you. I'm like, wait, you mean there's not, like, a breakdown of who these characters are? And when I looked at it, it's like, no. And that that's very surprising because we all know how excellent these manuals can be. Right. Well, it's, it's one of those uh, weird things where this is always a risk in a adventure game and where you have a protagonist who knows more than the player. And that can be, from a craft perspective, can be exploited to make something interesting. Like uh, Andrew Plotkin's Spider and Web, you know that's interesting. Uh, the protagonist knows a whole lot more than the player does. Um, but in Journey, that's obviously not what's going on here. This isn't some sort of uh, kind of postmodern, you know, <laughs> uh, romp. You know, this is a you know bog standard narrative and. Uh, if we are this person, we should at least know what this town is that they're in. So what is this town? Who are these people going on this quest? What is the quest? Uh, there was someone who went before and died. Who are those people? Where? Why did they die? And... You know, you just, I suppose the story is supposed to be sort of a immediate race kind of thing where just throw you in the deep water and things either make sense or they don't. Um, but I think it takes a certain amount of player or reader commitment to uh, sticking around long enough to know what those things are. Um, and I think it's it's a bigger ask today than it was 40 years ago uh, to ask a player to do that. I, I also think um, in terms of Infocom packaging, this is where we would expect typically Infocom packaging to do that kind of work um, and position us to play a game. Uh, now, it should be said, Infocom was not very experienced with player uh, player characters who actually were somebody. Um, you know, uh, we don't worry in Zork 1 uh, what the main character knows that we don't know because they don't know anything about where they are, for one thing. Um there's just the interesting kind of question of why are they there? But in that, in that game, it's interesting. 
it's not bewildering. And I think that's the line Journey doesn't quite walk is Zork is interesting. You don't know who this character is. You don't know what the thief's background is. You don't know these things, but they're mysteries to riddle out. They're not just basic details of storytelling that are missing. So it's a very different effect. And um, it's it's one of the flaws that Ed, that Journey has. Um, now I know I promised you I'd say some nice things about Journey, and I will. We just haven't we haven't gotten there yet. Um, it is probably time one talk a little more about the story structure. Um, we already said it's rather derivative of the Lord of the Rings, and that's true. You've got. Uh, basically a hobbit-like figure. Uh, you have uh, you know, a dwarf and uh, you've got, um, you know, kind of the strong man leader. Uh, you got all these sort of familiar figures and you're going into the realm of the dwarves or the realm of the elves. Um, and yes, you, you will recognize, I think, a lot of it. Um, and I think the game takes it for granted that you'll recognize a lot of it. Um, like there, I think there's an underlying assumption that the, the player of the game is going to have a really developed idea of what an elf is, Mm. a really developed idea of what a dwarf is. And the game is not going to challenge those ideas about dwarfness or elfness, um, and it's also not really going to explain what those things are because it assumes, you know, um, I think there's, um, for a lot of the listeners, this podcast, and for a lot of, uh, those of you out there like me, um, have a background in enjoying fantasy, enjoy, uh, computer role-playing games, perhaps even tabletop role-playing games. Um, I think it's easy to, uh, overlook how nonsensical a lot of this stuff would look to someone who had zero experience with um token fantasy or, yeah like i know you read you read him yes um but i don't really know how we could measure how likely it would be for a player to have read tolkien well we have you you hadn't read any. No. Um, and I think that, that was one of the things I told you is if you want to understand this, you really need to at least watch one of these movies because otherwise, you know, the game is not going to explain any of this stuff, really. No, I think that could be a whole separate conversation because I inherited Tolkien through the film franchise. And um, so that does even more to build out the the setting and the characters and the visual world. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, it would be, it would have been very bewildering not having read the book or watched the film to just step into the space. Yes. Um, and I, like I said, I think a lot of uh, us uh, wouldn't know that because we come prepared for that, for that type of narrative. Um and as such, we're not really going to get lost in this idea of a fellowship of various different um, races 
of you know or in in dungeons and dragons in various character classes um traveling together to you know on a quest and it won't seem strange to anybody that there are these magic items that the different races had you know just like the rings of men and the rings of the dwarves and rings of the elves you know um and a dread lord um who um you know has a terrible terrible power and wants to you know take over the world again uh that's just something people like me will have seen again and again and not just in lord of the rings but in you know honestly other fantasy role-playing games you know desktop um or even western computer role-playing games you know we're gonna see uh, influences of tolkien and gygax um everywhere and um it gives us a shorthand to understanding this story um but uh if if we don't have that i think a lot of it is underdeveloped and underexplained um anyway uh it doesn't always clear what the goal of the game is um we might as well talk about what the game is about early on um you meet up with kind of a gandalf type figure and Callie, since we did that together, um, we might as well talk about the journey to meeting him for the first time. You remember? Yeah. So, like, it, one thing I think even Karen Carrington say in Eaten by a Gru episode on this podcast is you're just kind of like, um, like a cattle shoot. Like, you're just driven forward. It's very linear. So, we have, like, the map shop. Then we have the tavern. Then we have like we entered the path and there's this mass grave and then it just I feel like the beginning happens so quickly and not only do you move from setting to setting but you also don't really know who you are and why why you were there and um so by the time we meet Asterix who's the other wizard like Praxis is the wizard with us um it's only there that I'm able to sort of get a sense of what we should even do yeah um yeah at first uh, you're just kind of playing along right um you go into the tavern you go into the store because it's there yeah and uh, you know it, it's there so you ought to go inside it right and um you look around there's there's a map um that may or may not be useful um a lot of players will buy it because it's there and they can right but but we i didn't and uh quickly learned <laughs> that well, and not quickly well no 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 actually. actually yes because you can what did you call it? you can be a zombie a zombie player um so <laughs> we made it for a while and yeah. then it was like oh by the way you needed that map way back where and it's not that like you can't really go back no <laughs> so what just like restart because <laughs> that was from the beginning there's no way to just like start somewhere else you have to completely start over mm -hmm. and um you know i mean if you do everything you're supposed to do in that little sequence and no this is not a spoiler this is this is like the prologue um you know i mean you can you can stop listening now if you want but this um this is the gameplay from the first 30 minutes of a 20 to 
40 hour game. So, um, I'm officially, uh, declaring this not spoiler territory. Uh, but, but be warned every decision, even your first one really matters. And you don't really know. I mean, I think that's the thing is you don't really know. Um, not all decisions feel momentous, um, even if they are. Uh, in this case, the map se- feels pretty whatever, you know. Um, and if you don't buy it, you've still got a lot to do before you figure out you should have bought it. Um, I think, Gally, we had to, um, well, in the next place, we had to recruit the guy who's like a Strider-like figure. He's like a kind of a rough ranger. He's the one that was like described as an unsavory yeah. character. And then he's like, oh, I know how to do this. And he helps us out. And then he gets, well, it's not really a spoiler. Like people keep going and coming at different points. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't really know. I mean, the, the members of your party are listed, but there can be such gaps depending on how long it takes you to maneuver certain places mm-hmm. that it's like, where's everyone? Like, I felt like I was doing a very stressful, like middle school play. Like, where mm-hmm. <laughs> cue the trees. Where's the night? Like, where, where is everybody? But there's a decent amount of uh, gameplay between when you get the map and when you need the map. And um, along the way, there are several situations where you're presented with walking one way or the other and what happens is you can walk left and progress and then later walk right but if you don't walk left if you just immediately walk right you'll never get to walk left and there are no clues or indications in the text so you're just choosing things and you don't really know Uh, what you're missing you can't really go back so you know you can keep a complex web of saved games where you like go one way then restore then go the other way um but it's uh it's um it's going to be tough for a lot of people who come up with parser games and and um i guess now's a good time to lay out why that is exactly i think you know what I hope we get to hear from some of you about this. I, I would love to hear what you think about this, but what what is the appeal of the parser? Why do people like parser games? And I think one of the reasons people like the parser game is because there is no sense to the player in a traditional parser game what is and isn't possible Mm -hmm. which to a player means anything could be possible you know that you don't really know until you type it you know maybe fling is a is a verb but you don't know that you know until you type it so there's this idea that um the endless variability of language um places you in sort of a state where anything could be possible for the player and and that's that freedom um can be exhilarating 
And it's very satisfying when you arrive at, you know, of all the things that this is the thing. Um, it could have been anything, but it was this thing. And now I'm progressing. And that's, that's a real satisfaction of these games. Um, and, you know, one of the expectations in that is that, is that by and large parser games have freedom of movement and you can draw a map. Mapping is a huge convention of parser games. Well, you know, a map in Journey isn't going to look like any map you've ever made for a parser game because you you actually don't have uh, freedom of movement. Uh, you're constrained, and and you're not always constrained in ways that are visible to you. Um, so it's like the exact opposite. Um, you know, in a parser game you may feel that it's possible for you to do anything. But in Journey, you might feel that it's not possible for you to do anything. And I think that's what the whole comment about, it felt very linear to Kane Carrington, and I used the word like cattle shoot, because it's like, in many cases, your choices are kind of dictated to you. You have these, is it four columns along the bottom? Mm -hmm. You just, you click... Um, and there, there is, I think, something really lost in that adventure. Um, and I felt like my role as a participant was diminished because instead of having to come up with the language, it was just a matter of clicking. Yeah. Um, ultimately, uh, there is just a real feeling of constraint and a real feeling, um, Um, kind of an ongoing anxiety that you in the past made a bad choice and, and don't know it yet. Um, that was a feeling I, I had while playing journey. Um, now with all that said, I think, I think we should talk a little bit about the merits of this game and the merits of, what is kind of a new approach in interactive fiction and it's an approach people like a lot these days and um so to start you know mark blank took the existing um you know zill zork implementation language he heavily modified it to support uh, this interface of clicking things and uh, you know just like um in a standard uh, parser game that's keeping track of states and inventory and you know various uh, variables that track what the player's done and what hasn't been done uh, and so right under the hood maybe not a lot has changed but in terms of what is presented to the player um, that's been tweaked quite a bit and I, that brings me uh, well first of all I don't think this is a bad um, bad premise upon which to build a game. In fact, a lot of uh, interactive fiction today is based on making choices rather than inputting words. And uh, there's been a lot of great work in that field. And so uh, for Mark Blank way back in 1989 to say, uh, we can do something cool in this way, you know, um, is very forward-looking you know i don't think the interactive fiction community really got 
uh, well, it took them a while to get interested in uh, games based on a choice. You know, I'm talking about Twine and things like that. Uh, so in 1989, from Mark Blank, do this is very forward-looking. Um, I think the real issue with how this turned out, Kelly and I talked about this at the beginning, is if we're going to write a game that is constrained, then we need to write a narrative that complements it. Um, and a lot of the problems uh, in Journey, a lot of the puzzles, a lot of the navigation are suited to a parser game and not to a choice game. Um, like if you have a 50-50 chance of, of picking the right road first, you know, that's, 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 that's a parser situation. That should be a reversible choice. Um, it should not be this kind of uh, multiple choice selection gameplay. It doesn't, it doesn't work unless the game itself has no winning conditions. If it tells an interesting story, no matter what you choose, then it can do those kinds of things. You know, that's just kind of a road, not traveled, uh, construction, which I think would have a lot of value, but I think Mark Blank came to this from a parser mindset and even though he built the technology he didn't have the point of view to write a story that would fit it yeah thanks for i I really enjoyed everything you said because i do think despite all the struggles and you know critiques that people have of it it is absolutely fair to acknowledge how kind of groundbreaking he was like he continued to even at the end of Infocom and his career there he still was an innovator that he started with Mm -hmm. and um so it's not like it's a a sad ending or for for Mark Blake and his career even if this game isn't entirely loved or, or well received yeah I agree um there's in my opinion a lot of value here um and I think um, you know with with game development, you need you have to have a platform, you know, and then you can then you can figure out what to do with it and and journey is the case of building a platform, and i'm I'm sure if there had been second or third games in this approach, uh, we would have a story that suited it very well. You know, um, and I do want to give credit for the technical innovation and the structural and formal innovation of of this multiple choice type type deal. Um, I think. Oh, I I do want to. You know, you look at it from the outside. The the largest underlying puzzle for the game is the resource thing for Praxis, uh, the spell casting. And to, to those of you who haven't played it, uh, there are various essences that can be found around the war- game world, you know, elemental essences. So there's um, fire and water and air. And then there's these other, um, they're like catalysts, these other 
materials that can be used in concert with these essences and they all create different sorts of magic and throughout the game the 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 resources or i mean if you play dungeons and dragons spell components the spell components um are sometimes scarce mm -hmm. and you can screw up and wind up without enough essences to cast the spell you need to to advance and um i don't think that's a good thing to build a game around um you think about how much fun Callie we had with enchanter you know um where basically you're you're encouraged to experiment you're rewarded for experimenting and uh to to play a game where you're punished for it i think um i wonder not you know I, again i'm i'm waiting for that mark blank uh biography i'd love to read it um but i imagine there was a desire to say well you know these text games are just puzzle fests and needed we need something really puzzly here and um he wasn't ready to kind of go the a mind forever voyaging route and just say no you know you really don't you don't need a puzzle you know you just have a story um obviously interactive fiction has come a long way in the 30 plus years since now callie one of the things uh, i'm sitting here i think you'd probably agree um we probably ought to play some more contemporary choice-based games that people like. Yeah, I could see that being really good for context um, because I, I haven't had much exposure to that. So that would be, that would be nice. So that'll be a request. Um, I mean, we're going to keep doing our parser thing as well, but we'll, we'll dedicate an episode in the near future to one or more choice games. Uh, if you would like to send us your recommendation, if you were only going to play one Twine game, what would it be? Um, that kind of thing. We'd love to uh, get get your advice uh, so we can uh, maybe pick something, uh, you know, two or three episodes out. Yeah, please do. That would be, I, I look forward to exploring that. So I guess, you know, that's that's my feeling about, journey i i don't think it's fun to play i th i respect uh mark blank for having a different idea and for building the technology to do it um and i also think it wasn't a dead end i think the things he was cooking up for journey would come back you know would recur would reappear um in in the interactive fiction scene uh, years later. So um, I'm not ready to just call it a total flop. I, I don't, I don't enjoy it, but I think if you study this kind of thing, um, it's definitely worth just at least taking a look at it and understanding what it was trying to do. Yeah. I mean, honestly, everything you just said, I, it made me sort of rethink about this game and it's at the end of Infocom but 
it, you know, I always saw that as kind of like a sad ending and it should have gone on much longer, but it, it is sort of, I like that you highlighted this is still an innovation and it's still something that we now have a, you know, a lineage of really interesting games that come from this form and it had to start somewhere. And um, so, yeah, I, I really just enjoyed listening to your take on that. Well, I guess that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode. We're sorry it took so long. Um, it's a journey. It, we were we were it, on a journey. We we were on a journey. It, uh, there's no better way to say it. Uh, and maybe we'll get to the end, and you'll be like, "Wouldn't have wouldn't have been nice if you would have done this instead," <laughs> which is a thing that happens uh, <laughs> when you get to the end of the actual game that's yeah you get little tips about what you could have done yes should have should have would have should have emptied the dishwasher sooner <laughs> um you have to load it first though. so our next game <laughs> is going to be are you ready sork one so we went almost all the way to the end and now we'll go all the way back to the beginning um basically a decade a decade of infocom so we'll we'll uh we'll take a look at that and uh hopefully i mean so much has been said over the years hopefully we can come up with something uh, good to tell you maybe you haven't thought of before uh, in any case uh between now and then we would love to get some mail from you we were pretty light on the enchanter email and the salter email so uh you know we we really, really value your feedback and like uh, we, we do this because we like to have a conversation, be conversational uh, with you, our listeners. So uh, as always, there'll be ways to get in touch listed right there in the show notes. Easiest is probably email golmac at golmac.org. That's pretty easy. Uh, <laughs> send us a note and uh, we will almost certainly... Uh, reply. Yes, we love hearing from you. It brightens our day. So please write. Okay. Thank you guys. Thanks to one and all. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.